Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, A New Nation, with a message entitled, Passing the Baton. So turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. are in the process of dying, if they can, or if they're lucid, they will normally return to some of the themes of their lives. Genesis 48 and 49 is the lengthy account of the dying and death of Jacob, or Israel, the last of the three patriarchs. With his death, the patriarchal era is over, and the Bible now moves us to a new era. This will now be the era of nationhood and not the era of a singular family. In Abraham, there was a promise. In Isaac, that promise was nurtured and protected. In Israel, that promise began to be fulfilled as he became the father of 12 sons. But now the 12 sons would have children of their own, and then those children would have their own children, and eventually the family of the patriarchs formed into a nation. That nation was named after Jacob. Now, you'll remember that God himself changed Jacob's name to Israel, and thus Israel's death marks the transition from family to nation. But of course, Israel has some important work to do before he is done. If you've ever seen the run of a relay, you'll notice that races are sometimes won or lost with the passing of the baton. See, the same is true of nations. Wise and stable nations have a very clear process in which leadership is passed from one generation to the next. Typically, kingdoms pass the baton by mandating that the oldest son of the king becomes the next leader. But we also know that there's a weakness in that system. I mean, what if the oldest son is a fool? And what if he has a younger son who's wise? What then? Well, in almost all stable kingdoms, it doesn't matter. The oldest is king after the death of his father. Well, those of us who live in democracies tend to think that we've solved that problem. Around every four years, we have elections which are a report card on how the government is doing. But as we all know, this entire philosophy is premised on the idea that the majority will always be right. They're not always right. The majority wanted Jesus crucified. And and so in a fallen world, the passing of the baton is the crucial part of the race. Jacob or Israel knew that. He was fully aware that the patriarchal era was coming to an end with his passing. So Genesis 46 says that the number of Jacob's descendants, the ones who moved to Egypt, were 66 persons. That, of course, didn't include Joseph, nor of Israel. And in the end, the family of Israel at that time numbered 70. But then, of course, more children were born, and soon the number grows. Since we know that Israel had lived in Egypt 17 years before he died, we'd have to assume the number is now far over 100. And since this family is going to need leadership, It's fitting for Israel to ensure that the torch is well passed after he's gone. You know, under normal circumstances, we would think the firstborn, who was Reuben, should have become the family leader at that point. But Reuben has shown himself to be unreliable, and he's far too grasping and impulsive to be a leader. He's unable to serve in a way that blesses the family. Of course, Joseph is tailor-made for that position. He's already prime minister in Egypt. His ability to handle a national emergency is by now legendary. His leadership has saved a great many lives. And furthermore, his godliness is well known. But the time is at hand to anoint him for that role. I know what some of us are thinking. Doesn't the leadership go to Judah 
and with that, the eventual coming of the Messiah. Well, you want to hold on to that thought. I'm going to get to that by the end. But for now, let's begin to read our text. But before we read, let's remember the context. Joseph has been told his father is dying. He's gone to see him. He has his two sons in tow. Israel has said that Joseph's two sons are going to be counted as equal to his other sons. He, in effect, is adopting them. That formula then leaves Joseph in a unique role. In his wisdom, Israel knew that by making the two sons of Joseph into tribal leaders, he would then release Joseph from the role of tribal leader and would make him the leader or the ruler over all the sons of Israel. And in that way, he is given leadership over all Israel's sons. So now he's established that. Okay, good. We get that much. So with that, we're ready to read our text. Genesis 48, verses 8 to 12. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, at first reading, it does strike us as a little strange that that Israel has asked who they are. I mean, the most obvious explanation seems to be that he's blind and he needs to ask. But we have to assume that when Joseph entered the room with his sons, Jacob would have been quite aware that the sons were already in the room with him. And besides, he no doubt has been around them before, and so this, well, it seems like a strange question. Let me suggest an example. As a pastor, I've performed more than one wedding. And there's always a time in every wedding where I say something that's exactly the same as every other wedding. I'll say, do you, Rudy, take Annabelle, who stands before you, to be your lawfully wedded wife? Now, if you didn't know what's going on, you might say, well, wait a minute. Are you telling me that this matter wasn't clarified before we got to the ceremony? And in truth, Rudy, in every wedding I've ever done, or whatever his name is, has always said, I do. And I knew that's what he was going to say. And everyone else in the room knew that's what he was going to say. So why even ask the question? Well, the answer is that it's a formal ritual which has legal significance. It's a declaration made before God, before the people assembled, and it's a declaration that's going to be recorded in the legal records of the government. I think that's what's happening right here. Israel is about to do something that will shape the leadership of God's people. And what he's doing has a formal significance. Leadership is not decided in informal ways. It must be openly and publicly proclaimed. And so I understand Israel's question. It's a formal question. Identify these two young men. And Joseph responds, they're my sons, the ones God has given me. And with that, Israel responds, bring them to me. I wish to bless them. There's a series of strange things that happens, and if you're paying attention, you'll notice that Joseph brings his sons to Israel, who kisses and embraces them, and and that's not strange. Neither is verse 11, which says that Israel reminds Joseph that he never expected to see his face, and now he sees his children, how God has blessed him. He, He says this while the sons are still in his embrace. And the end of verse 12, well, that's not strange either. That is, Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, bows before his father in honor. Joseph has never forgotten that the honor belongs to the people of God, not the people of Egypt. And with faith in God, 
and not in political power. I mean, these events are all as you would expect them to be. But, but what's really strange here is that before he can bow, Joseph had to remove his sons from Israel's knees. Now, if you do your chronology, the sons, well, there's no doubt about it. By then, they're in their 20s. What? They're on Israel's knees? No, but here the, the original Hebrew helps us. The Hebrew Bible says, from with his knees. It doesn't mean a dying man is bouncing 20-year-old young men on his knees. It means that the two young men were standing so close to Israel. So Israel is sitting on his bed. They're touching his knees. It's probably the case because that's how close they needed to be for Israel to see them. His eyes were that bad. But, but you have to imagine a man with very poor eyesight staring intently at the two young men he has just adopted. It's an incredible scene. What does a dying man do with adopted children? But such is the nature of his hope. The baton is being passed, and Israel is assuring that it's going to be done right. I mean, he might be legally blind, but the clarity of his vision of what God wants him to do for these young men, well, that's better than 2020. So let's read verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. You have to imagine Joseph, knowing that a formal, solemn event is at hand, puts his hands on his son's shoulders, and I assume that he orchestrates it so that he brings them near his father. But as he does so, he's very careful on how he presents them. Manasseh is the firstborn, and therefore, it will be the right hand of his father that will rest on his son. The right hand is thought of as the hand of strength and honor and power. It's the hand of glory, and that's what the firstborn gets. And so Joseph simply assumes that the rights of the firstborn is the right of leadership. Oh my, how quickly Joseph has forgotten his own story. He was not the firstborn. In fact, he was the second last, and God chose him. No, no, God does not choose as we do. We're about to find that out. Whether it's the daily program with Dr. Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil, or In Doubt's weekly conversation with young people about questions of life and faith, each ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is designed for one purpose, to grow people in their daily walk with Jesus. This month is our fiscal year end, a critical time for each ministry. But today I wanted to focus your attention on In Doubt. Young adults are facing challenging questions and hearing voices that influence how they think, feel, and live. In Doubt makes a difference. If reaching young people for Christ is on your heart, perhaps you'd consider participating in our fiscal year end this month. The goal for In Doubt is to reach $75,000 by June 30th. Your gift would mean so much in reaching young people with Bible teaching they can trust. To give, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca. I'm reading Genesis 48, 14 to 16. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, 
The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Let's hold this matter of Israel's crossed hands until later. For now, let's examine the actual blessing. First, notice how careful Israel is to clarify what he means when he says God. You know, for Israel, God is not a philosophical concept or a vague description of a being that's greater than he is. When Israel speaks of God, he's speaking of the God who has revealed himself in history. You know, that I think is crucial, especially for us today. You know, when I hear people talking about God today, at least that's how I understand many people, the first thing they mention about him is that he's love. And I always want to ask, how do you know that? You know, sometimes people will say, well, I feel like he is. Again, I want to ask, how do you know that this being of God in any way corresponds to your immediate feelings or, for that matter, to what you think? Has it ever occurred to you that when you've been thinking of God all these years, all that you've only been thinking about is that, well, it's a projection of yourself. It's what you want and what you love and what you hate and feel and think. And so what are we talking about? Are we talking about ourselves or are we talking about God? Please also think what it meant for Israel to talk of God to both Ephraim and Manasseh. They would have known about the God of their grandfather on their mother's side, Ra the sun god. Isis was the mother goddess. Then there was Osiris, the ruler of the underworld. Horus was the god of the sky. There were gods of agriculture, the god of the Nile, gods of magic and medicine, gods of war and gods of dancing and music, gods of childbirth and fertility, even a god of drunkenness. So you might remember that when the nation of Israel would later make a calf idol and worship it, it was clear that they had never abandoned the Egyptian gods that had been planted in their souls. So to simply say God, well, that really was as incomprehensible in the ancient world as it is today. But here in Genesis 48, when Israel is about to bless these two young men, he makes it very clear who it is he's talking about. First, Israel said he is the God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked. And he means here, first of all, the God of covenant, the God who revealed himself not just as creator, but the God who made an unbreakable promise to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would give him the land of Canaan and bring him and his descendants into salvation, and that redemption would be found through him to the whole world. See, I'm reminded in this how the French philosopher Blaise Pascal once prayed. He prayed, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and sages, rather certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, very God of very God, thy God shall be my God. You see, that's certitude. I'm not worshiping, said Pascal, a God of my own reason or a God of the general consensus of the people of my age. I'm worshiping the real God who intervened in real history. Now, Israel's not done with his two grandsons. The God of Abraham and Isaac, he begins, and then he adds, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. You know, it's, it's fascinating that Israel calls God his shepherd. Israel had, of course, had lots of dealings with sheep. Sheep have to be led. They have to be cared for. I was led, he said, 
not just in the later days of my life, but from the very moment of my birth, even from my conception, because even then, while I was still in my mother's womb, God had already spoken about me that he would bring about a covenant in my life. God of covenant, God of history, God of intimate personal encounter who has shaped all of my days. And then he adds something interesting. He said, the angel who has redeemed me from evil. And I think Israel might have been referring to the encounter he had with the angel of God when he was at the river Jabbok, only to have discovered that as he's wrestling with this angel, he's actually wrestling with God. And if that's what Israel means here when he says it, he clearly wants to add, it's also the God who redeemed me and made me his child. It's that God I'm speaking about. And then on the basis of a man who knows the God of history, the God of covenant, the God of personal encounter, the God of sovereign care, and the God of his own redemption, on the basis of something real, he now adds a profound blessing. He says, in them, that is, in you two young men, let my name be carried on and let the name of Abraham and Isaac be carried on. You see, Israel is claiming these two young men for the real, the genuine God. He has wrestled them out of the hands of the gods of Egypt and they now belong to the one true God alone. It's quite a moment. God has laid his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh and now they belong to him. You know, at this moment, Joseph wants to intervene. He he knows his father has not finished the blessing. And as wonderful as that moment seems to him, he wants to correct something that he sees going on because it's clearly wrong in his eyes. Genesis 48, 17 to 20. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father says, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now here's what Joseph was right about. In normal circumstances, the firstborn is given leadership over all that followed. But consider the exceptions. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn, but the blessing went to Isaac. Esau was Isaac's firstborn, but the blessing went to Jacob. So why does God act that way? I think he did it in order for human beings to understand that the blessing of God is not according to the flesh. Remember John 1, 12 to 13? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation comes not out of the will of man, but it comes out of God. Leadership among God's people also will rise out of the will of God. You might wonder how this worked out, that is, the leadership of Ephraim. See, those of you who know our Bible will know that eventually the kingship of Israel would flow to the tribe of Judah and that Jesus comes from that tribe. So hang on, Israel will have something to say about that in the next chapter. But those of you who also know your Bible history will remember that Joshua, the military commander who conquered the promised land and then divided up the land, assigning each tribe their allotment, well, this man, Joshua, was himself from the tribe of Ephraim. 
It would be Ephraim who would lead God's people to inherit the promises of God. And it is this that Israel rightly saw. You know, in time, Ephraim would also become the leading tribe in the nation of Israel. In time, the northern kingdom would sometimes only be called Ephraim from that leading tribe. But in time, Ephraim's leaders would also stray from God. They would reject the God of Abraham. That's why when we come to Psalm 78, verses 67 to 68, it says, He, that is God, rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And we learn from that, that God would choose leadership on the basis of faithfulness. We also learn that if the descendants of Ephraim turned from God, their place of prominence would be removed. It's a, it's a lesson we all need to take to heart. And with that, we come to the conclusion of chapter 48, verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And that mountain slope refers to Shechem, which to this very day houses Joseph's tomb. Genesis 48 reminds us that God is faithful that God preserved leadership of his people, that God blessed his people, and that the gospel would be made available to all because God oversaw the development of his nation. It's something to ponder. John, thanks so much for your message today, but just, just a question to provide some clarity. Why is it that Jesus is described as the firstborn? Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting because the rights of the firstborn clearly within this passage about Jacob has fallen to the thirdborn. So uh, Jesus is not called the firstborn because God created him first and then created everything else. I mean, the Bible is very clear about this, that Jesus has eternally existed and that his is an eternal existence. So he's not created first, but firstborn is a title in Israel as it is in the entire Bible. And it is the title of prominence, it is the title of leadership, and is the title of him to whom all authority is due. So that's the title, and that's why Jesus is called by that very important title. That's great, John. Thanks so much for that. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. If there was ever a time for the ministry, it's now. If there was ever a time to hear about the hope and joy that comes from knowing Jesus, it's now. And now you can enjoy Laugh Again and Phil in a way never experienced before. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube. A new, inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. 
To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.